Part three of The Praise of Folly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Praise of Folly by Desiderius Erasmus. Translated by John Wilson. Part three. Is not war the very root and matter of all famed enterprises? And yet what more foolish than to undertake it, for I know not what trifles, especially when both parties are sure to lose more than they get by the bargain. For of those that are slain, not a word of them, and for the rest, when both sides are close engaged, and the trumpets make an ugly noise, what use of those wise men, I pray, that are so exhausted with study that their thin, cold blood has scarce any spirits left? No, it must be those blunt, fat fellows, that, by how much the more they exceed in courage, fall short in understanding. Unless, perhaps, one had rather choose Demosthenes for a soldier, who, following the example of Archilochius, threw away his arms and betook him to his heels ere he had scarce seen his enemy. As ill a soldier, as happy an orator. But counsel, you'll say, is not of least concern in matters of war. In a general I grant it, but this thing of warring is not part of philosophy, but managed by parasites, panders, thieves, cutthroats, ploughmen, sots, spendthrifts, and such other dregs of mankind, not philosophers, who, how unapt they are even for common converse, let Socrates, whom the oracle of Apollo, though not so wisely, judged the wisest of all men living, be witness, who, stepping up to speak somewhat, I know not what, in public, was forced to come down again, well laughed at for his pains. Though yet in this he was not altogether a fool, that he refused the appellation of wise, and, returning it back to the oracle, delivered his opinion that a wise man should abstain from meddling with public business, unless perhaps he should have rather admonished us to beware of wisdom, if we intended to be reckoned among the number of men, there being nothing but his wisdom that first accused and afterwards sentenced him to the drinking of his poisoned cup. For while, as you find him in Aristophanes, philosophizing about clouds and ideas, measuring how far a flea could leap, and admiring that so small a creature as a fly should make so great a buzz, he meddled not with anything that concerned common life. But his master, being in danger of his head, his scholar Plato is at hand, to wit that famous patron, that being disturbed with the noise of the people, could not go through half his first sentence. What should I speak of Theophrastus, who, being about to make an oration, became as dumb as if he had met a wolf in his way, which yet would have put courage in a man of war, or Isocrates, that was so cow-hearted that he dared never attempt it, or Tully, that great founder of the Roman eloquence, that could never begin to speak without an odd kind of trembling, like a boy that had got the hiccup, which Fabius interprets as an argument of a wise orator, and one that was sensible of what he was doing. And while he says it, does he not plainly confess that wisdom is a great obstacle to the true management of business? What would become of them, think you, were they to fight it out at blows, that are so dead through fear when the contest is only with empty words? And next to these is cried up, forsooth, that goodly sentence of Plato's, Happy is that commonwealth where a philosopher is prince, or whose prince is addicted to philosophy. When yet, if you consult historians, you'll find no princes more pestilent to the commonwealth than where the empire has fallen to some smatter in philosophy, 
or one given to letters, to the truth of which I think the Catos give sufficient credit, of whom the one was ever disturbing the peace of the commonwealth with his hair-brained accusations, the other, while he too wisely vindicated its liberty, quite overthrew it. Add to this the Bruti, Cassi, nay, Cicero himself, that was no less pernicious to the commonwealth of Rome than was Demosthenes to that of Athens. Besides Marcus Antoninus, that I may give you one instance that there was once one good emperor, for with much ado I can make it out, was become burdensome and hated of his subjects upon no other score but that he was so great a philosopher. But, admitting him good, he did the commonwealth more hurt in leaving behind him such a son as he did, than ever he did it good by his own government. For these kind of men that are so given up to the study of wisdom are generally most unfortunate, but chiefly in their children. Nature, it seems, so providently ordering it, lest this mischief of wisdom should spread further among mankind. For which reason it is manifest why Cicero's son was so degenerate, and that why Socrates' children, as one has well observed, were more like their mother than their father, that is to say, fools. However, this were to be borne with, if only as to public employments they were like a sow upon a pair of organs, were they anything more apt to discharge even the common offices of life. Invite a wise man to a feast, and he'll spoil the company, either with morose silence or troublesome disputes. Take him out to dance, and you'll swear a cow would have done it better. Bring him to the theatre, and his very looks are enough to spoil all, till, like Cato, he take an occasion of withdrawing rather than put off his supercilious gravity. Let him fall into discourse, and he shall make more sudden stops than if he had a wolf before him. Let him buy, or sell, or, in short, go about any of those things without there is no living in this world, and you'll say this piece of wisdom were rather a stock than a man, of so little use is he to himself, country, or friends, and all because he is wholly ignorant of common things, and lives a course of life quite different from the people, by which means it is impossible but that he contract a popular odium, to wit, by reason of the great diversity of their life and souls. For what is there at all done among men that is not full of folly, and that too from fools and to fools, against which universal practice, if any single one shall dare to set up his throat, my advice to him is, that, following the example of Timon, he retire into some desert, and there enjoy his wisdom to himself. But, to return to my design, what power was it that drew those stony, oaken, and wild people into cities but flattery? For nothing else is signified by Amphion and Orpheus' harp, what was it that, when the common people of Rome were like to have destroyed all by their mutiny, reduced them to obedience? Was it a philosophical oration? Least. But a ridiculous and childish fable of the belly and the rest of the members. And as good success had Themistocles in his of the fox and hedgehog. What wise man's oration could ever have done so much with the people as Sertorius' invention of his white hind? or his ridiculous emblem of pulling off a horse's tail hair by hair, or as Lycurgus his example of his two whelps, to say nothing of Minos and Numa, 
both of which ruled their foolish multitudes with fabulous inventions, with which kind of toys that great and powerful beast, the people, are led away. Again, what city ever received Plato's or Aristotle's laws, or Socrates' precepts? But, on the contrary, what made the Decae devote themselves to the infernal gods, or cue Curtius to leap into the gulf, but an empty vainglory, a most bewitching siren? And yet, this strange it should be so condemned by those wise philosophers. For what is more foolish, say they, than for a suppliant suitor to flatter the people, to buy their favour with gifts, to court the applauses of so many fools, to please himself with their acclamations, to be carried on the people's shoulders as in triumph, and have a brazen statue in the marketplace? Add to this the adoption of names and surnames, those divine honours given to a man of no reputation, and the deification of the most wicked tyrants with public ceremonies. Most foolish things, and such as one Democritus is too little to laugh at. Who denies it? And yet from this root sprang all the great acts of the heroes which the pens of so many eloquent men have extolled to the skies. In a word, this folly is that that laid the foundation of cities, and by it empire, authority, religion, policy, and public actions are preserved. Neither is there anything in human life that is not a kind of pastime of folly. But to speak of arts, what set men's wits on work to invent and transmit to posterity so many famous, as they conceive, pieces of learning, but the thirst of glory? With so much loss of sleep, such pains and travail, have the most foolish of men thought to purchase themselves a kind of I-know-not-what fame, than which nothing can be more vain. And yet, notwithstanding, you owe this advantage to folly, and which is the most delectable of all other, that you reap the benefit of other men's madness. And now, having vindicated to myself the praise of fortitude and industry, what think you if I do the same by that of prudence? But some will say, you may as well join fire and water. It may be so, but yet I doubt not but to succeed even in this also, if, as you have done hitherto, you will but favour me with your attention. And first, if prudence depends upon experience, to whom is the honour of that name more proper? To the wise man, who partly out of modesty and partly distrust of himself attempts nothing? or the fool, whom neither modesty, which he never had, nor danger, which he never considers, can discourage from anything. The wise man has recourse to the books of the ancients, and from thence picks nothing but subtleties of words. The fool, in undertaking and venturing on the business of the world, gathers, if I mistake not, the true prudence, such as Homer, though blind, may be said to have seen when he said, The burned child dreads the fire. For there are two main obstacles to the knowledge of things, modesty, that casts a mist before the understanding, and fear, that, having fancied a danger, dissuades us from the attempt. But from these folly sufficiently frees us, and few there are that rightly understand of what great advantage it is to blush at nothing and attempt everything. But if you had rather take prudence for that that consists in the judgment of things, Hear me, I beseech you, how far they are from it that yet crack of the name. For first, 
tis evident that all human things, like Alcibiades Silenae, or rural gods, carry a double face, but not the least alike, so that what at first sight seems to be death, if you view it narrowly, may prove to be life, and so the contrary. What appears beautiful may chance to be deformed, what wealthy a very beggar, what infamous praiseworthy, what learned a dunce, what lusty feeble, what jocund sad, what noble base, what lucky unfortunate, what friendly an enemy, and what healthful noisome. In short, view the inside of these Silenae, and you'll find them quite other than what they appear, which, if perhaps it shall not seem so philosophically spoken, I'll make it plain to you after my blunt way. Who would not conceive a prince a great lord and abundant in everything? But yet, being so ill-furnished with the gifts of the mind, and ever thinking he shall never have enough, he is the poorest of all men. And then, for his mind so given up to vice, tis a shame how it enslaves him. I might in like manner philosophize of the rest, but let this one, for example's sake, be enough. Yet why this, will someone say? Have patience, and I'll show you what I drive at. If anyone seeing a player acting his part on a stage should go about to strip him of his disguise and show him to the people in his true native form, would he not, think you, not only spoil the whole design of the play, but deserve himself to be pelted off with stones as a fantastical fool and one out of his wits? But nothing is more common with them than such changes. The same person, one while impersonating a woman, and another while a man, now a youngster, and by and by a grim seigneur, now a king, and presently a peasant, now a god, and in a trice again an ordinary fellow. But to discover this were to spoil all, it being the only thing that entertains the eyes of the spectators. And what is all this life but a kind of comedy, wherein men walk up and down in one another's disguises, and act their respective parts, till the property man brings them back to the attiring house. And yet he often orders a different dress, and makes him that came but just now off in the robes of a king put on the rags of a beggar. Thus are all things represented by counterfeit, and yet without this there was no living. And here, if any wise man, as it were, dropped from heaven, should start up and cry, This great thing, whom the world looks upon for a god, and I know not what, is not so much as a man, for that, like a beast, he is led by his passions, but the worst of slaves, inasmuch as he gives himself up willingly to so many and such detestable masters. Again, if he should bid a man that were bewailing the death of his father to laugh, for that he now began to live by having got an estate, without which life is but a kind of death, or call another that were boasting of his family ill-begotten or base, because he is so far removed from virtue that is the only fountain of nobility, and so of the rest. What else would he get by it but be thought himself mad and frantic? For, as nothing is more foolish than preposterous wisdom, so nothing is more unadvised than a forward unseasonable prudence. And such is his that does not comply with the present time and order himself as the market goes, but, forgetting that law of feasts, either drink or be gone, undertakes to disprove a common received opinion. 
whereas, on the contrary, tis the part of a truly prudent man not to be wise beyond his condition, but either to take no notice of what the world does, or run with it for company. But this is foolish, you'll say. Nor shall I deny it, provided always you be so civil on the other side as to confess that this is to act a part in that world. But, O oh you gods, shall I speak or hold my tongue? But why should I be silent in a thing that is more true than truth itself? However, it might not be amiss, perhaps, in so great an affair, to call forth the muses from Helicon, since the poets so often invoke them upon every foolish occasion. Be present, then, a while, and assist me, you daughters of Jupiter, while I make it out that there is no way to that so much famed wisdom, nor access to that fortress, as they call it, of happiness, but under the banner of folly. And first is agreed of all hands that our passions belong to folly, inasmuch as we judge a wise man from a fool by this, that the one is ordered by them, the other by reason. And therefore the Stoics remove from a wise man all disturbances of mind as so many diseases. But these passions do not only the office of a tutor to such as are making towards the port of wisdom, but are in every exercise of virtue as it were spurs and incentives, nay, and encouragers to well-doing, which, though that great Stoic Seneca most strongly denies, and takes from a wise man all affections whatever, yet in doing that he leaves him not so much as a man, but rather a new kind of god that was never yet, nor ever like to be. Nay, to speak plainer, he sets up a stony semblance of a man, void of all sense and common feeling of humanity. And much good to them with this wise man of theirs. Let them enjoy him to themselves, love him without competitors, and live with him in Plato's commonwealth, the country of ideas, or Tantalus orchards. For who would not shun and startle at such a man, as at some unnatural accident or spirit? A man dead to all sense of nature and common affections, and no more moved with love or pity than if he were a flint or rock, whose censure nothing escapes, that commits no errors himself, but has a lynx's eyes upon others, measures everything by an exact line, and forgives nothing, pleases himself with himself only, the only rich, the only wise, the only free man, and only king. In brief, the only man that is everything, but in his own single judgment only, that cares not for the friendship of any man, being himself a friend to no man, makes no doubt to make the gods stoop to him, and condemns and laughs at the whole actions of our life. And yet such a beast is this their perfect wise man. But let me pray, if the thing were to be carried by most voices, what city would choose him for its governor, or what army desire him for their general? What woman would have such a husband, what good fellow such a guest, or what servant would either wish or endure such a master? Nay, who had not rather have one of the middle sort of fools, who, being a fool himself, may the better know how to command or obey fools, and who, though he pleases like, tis yet the greater number? one that is kind to his wife, merry among his friends, a boon companion, and easy to be lived with, and lastly, one that thinks nothing of humanity should be a stranger to him. 
but I am weary of this wise man, and therefore I'll proceed to some other advantages. Go to, then. Suppose a man in some lofty high tower, and that he could look around him, as the poets say Jupiter was now and then wont. To how many misfortunes would he find the life of man subject? How miserable, to say no worse, our birth! How difficult our education! To how many wrongs our childhood exposed! To what pains our youth! How insupportable our old age, and grievous our unavoidable death! As also what troops of diseases beset us, how many casualties hang over our heads, how many troubles invade us, and how little there is that is not steeped in gall! To say nothing of those evils one man brings upon another, as poverty, imprisonment, infamy, dishonesty, wrecks, snares, treachery, reproaches, actions, deceits. But I am got into as endless a work as numbering the sands. For what offences mankind have deserved these things, or what angry God compelled them to be born into such miseries, is not my present business. Yet he that shall diligently examine it with himself, would he not, think you, approve the example of the Milesian virgins, and kill himself? But who are they that for no other reason but that they were weary of life have hastened their own fate? Were they not the next neighbours to wisdom, among whom, to say nothing of Diogenes, Xenocrates, Cato, Cassius, Brutus, that wise man Chiron, being offered immortality, chose rather to die than be troubled with the same thing always? End of Part 3